Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Uh, today uh, we are in the studio. I should say we, me, Wade's gone again. This is a, a month-free Wade zone, uh, which is uh, which has been kind of it's been peaceful, right? But there are some things lacking. Um, I'm here with Brian Dobler, um, who has been on the show before. Say hi, Brian. Hi. And uh, we're here to talk about uh, missiology, uh, specifically in the Old Testament. But we, we uh, uh, said, what should we do for a free-for-all? And we said, we don't like doing free-for-alls. That's a Wade <laughs> thing. So there are some things that are missing when Wade is uh, not around here. So um, uh, Pastor Dobler uh, teaches at Wisconsin Lutheran High School. If you're a listener of the show, you've known he's been on many times um, and has a wide uh, variety um, of ministry kind of situations that he's been in and a lot of wisdom to offer. And right now he's currently working towards his doctorate at Concordia Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it's going to be in missiology. And so we're going to have a discussion about missiology specifically in the Old Testament right now. But uh, as we we're preparing for this, or just kind of setting it up, uh, uh, Brian, you gave me a long list of topics uh, within missiology that we could go. And I just said, why don't we start with the first one, Old Testament, and um, maybe uh, not a direct series like we it, like ten in a row or something like that. But maybe you know every every month or so, maybe we can get together and add one more to to the story. We'll see how today goes. And so, um, after our disclaimer, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about Old Testament missiology. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you are just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. gave me your list, Brian, of uh, topics within missiology, uh, I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised, but uh, one of them was the Old Testament. So clearly God is going to do uh, mission work at all times. Um, but we do kind of have this idea that Israel was closed in, and then in the New Testament, Israel is opened up, and the message of Israel is going to be um, news to the Gentiles, and this is going to be the glory of Israel. But a careful reading of the Old Testament uh, tells us something a little bit different. And you, know, you have characters like Melchizedek, you have non-Jewish people, and, and just maybe even the general idea of Israel being um, the church in the sense that we're the church, that this is God's people, and there's a message that is going through this church to the world. So, um, when when you started uh, looking a little bit more on the graduate level uh, stuff about missiology in the Old Testament, maybe what, what was kind of the first thing that oh, I never thought about that, like a, a light bulb moment or something like that. What's the first thing that you would say about Old Testament missiology? Uh, when you start to look at the overall picture, uh, the the amount of people. Uh, who you can identify in the Old Testament who went and brought the gospel to non-Israelites and the amount of people uh, in the Old Testament who were foreigners who clearly professed a faith uh, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, just begins to stand out. Sometimes I think we overlook them because we're looking at biblical or Old Testament history from the standpoint of of Israel moving uh, forward as the people of God, the chosen people to, to Jesus Christ. Um, but when you pull these names out and just identify them one by one, you start to realize there's a whole uh, number of them. You know, just looking, for example, at the end of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 30 is written by a, name, uh, a guy named Agur. Uh, or maybe even better is Proverbs 31 is written by a guy named King Lemuel. 
uh, and King Lemuel, I mean, you can look up and down in all of Judah's history, all of Israel's history, and you will not find a King Lemuel. This guy is a, a foreign guy uh, who clearly becomes a believer. Not only that, becomes a believer, but he is one of the inspired authors of uh, the Old Testament, uh, if just a chapter or two uh, at the end of the book of Proverbs. Uh, so it's in those little details and then putting them all together in, you know, pulling them out from the Old Testament and then putting them all together, you start to realize there's a whole lot more going on in the Old Testament as far as mission uh, than you ever really uh, maybe thought about as you studied it before. Yeah, and one thing maybe to think about is we, we think about it in, at best, a New Testament worldview, but really for us in America, this American, there's these churches here and mission work is uh, your neighbor next door is... Um, you know, hasn't been to church in, in uh, three years, and so that's my mission work. Or I send missionaries to this foreign nation or country. But in, in the Old Testament, you know, each locality had kind of its own God, right? And the God was connected to the locality and to the people, right? So it's kind of a different mindset. And so I, I'm, maybe this is something you guys talked about. Maybe I'm, I'm way off here, but there's a lot of talk about the nations and the nation and, and speaking as a community to another community or um, it, it was definitely maybe even an apologetic sense that might, you know, your local God isn't real, um, but here is this local God instead of the individual evangelism that we probably first think of living in the 20th, 21st century. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. I mean, especially if you start with kind of the key figure uh, in, in Old Testament missiology, which I would say you could argue is Abraham. Abraham uh, grows up and it seems to have a little bit of a polytheistic background. We're introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And the first thing you hear is a, a, a missiological term. God says to him, go uh, from this place to this new place. And in that same Genesis chapter 12 context where God sends Abraham, you have that promise, which again opens up mission in the Old Testament and you see it elaborated on over and over. But um, all nations will be blessed through him. So you have that sending, you have that universal gospel message. And then no sooner does Abraham uh, go, he's sent, he shows up in what we end up, you know, we call the promised land. He's in Canaan. And the first thing he does, uh, is it at Genesis 12, 8, uh, is Abraham sets up the altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. And I think it's pretty safe to say, I don't know that it's a, you know, a home run sort of thing, uh, but that call upon has the idea of proclaiming. And that name of the Lord uh, has this, you know, a broader thing than just, you know, his just saying his name. It has all of his attributes, which of course is, you know, well, we would want to lead with, you know, law and then also the gospel, the promises uh, that the Lord has made. And what I see interesting about that then, too, is you look at Abraham. Um, and again, you just read over these stories. Uh, was it Lot gets, um, you know, kidnapped. He's carried off by the kings. Abraham chases him down. He has that whole, he has so, so many servants that he's picked up along the way. It was an army of 300, I believe. Uh, that he has running with him. And then uh, right in that same context is when the, the covenant of circumcision is introduced uh, and you have all of the servants of Abraham being circumcised. Uh, in that, you see some evidence that not only has Abraham moved into a new territory sent by God, he's proclaimed the name of the Lord. He set up church, a mission, a church plant, if you want to use language like that, He's reached out. He's brought servants into his home. He's witnessed to these servants. They've become believers, and they are circumcised uh, into that covenant with the Lord as well. You see all kinds of evidence there of mission uh, in the Old Testament through Abraham, the one to whom God promised, all nations will be blessed through you. And that's a, that concept of household we don't maybe fully understand either. Uh, you know, we... we have talked about before, Brian, just the idea of what we think about racism and slavery and stuff really is through the 
eyes of the Enlightenment. That they, it's not like they were nice back then before the Enlightenment, but there's a different concept of identity maybe a little bit. And so when you think about a household, you know, you maybe take the identity of the, the master of the household in a certain sense, and it didn't maybe matter as much of your ethnicity, right? So um, it, there's this constant that the whole household that would have assumed everybody, whether they were a blood relative or not, right? Seeing that both in the Old and the New Testament. And that strikes me a little bit as, you know, Israel is kind of a goofy thing, a very, I should say unique thing, where it's a nation state, it's also a nation as an ethnicity, but finally its identity is the people of God. It has a religious thing to it. So, um, you know, to be Israel, yes, there's the promise and through the, uh, through, through the line, uh, the Savior will come. And so there's, some, so, some, so there's some birth, literal birth things there. But when it comes to missiology, it's not like they're like, well, you're not Jewish later on, you know, you're not. Hebrew, so this is not your God. You belong to this other God. We don't see a hint of that, really. No, you have even kind of right from the beginning of the Israel forming as a nation. You think of the Exodus. Uh, it's it's kind of a neat thing. Uh, was it Exodus chapter twelve? That's you know there we think of the Passover. Exodus twelve has a lot of neat uh, missiological implications. It starts to bring into the picture of worship in Israel. You have the Passover uh, and. In the Passover, you have a statement in there, and I don't have, uh, you know, exactly remember it, but you have this sort of this closed, you know, we think a closed communion, closed Passover. Foreigners are not supposed to be in, it says in one breath. But then in the next sense, uh, you know, two sentences later or so, it says, if a foreigner is going to participate, this is how a foreigner is going to participate. Uh, and you not only have that in Exodus, you have it in, you know, Numbers, I think Numbers 15, when it's talking about the sacrifices. Uh, if a foreigner wants to bring this sacrifice, this is how a foreigner is going to bring the sacrifice. Uh, the, you know, Leviticus with the Day of Atonement. If a foreigner is going to participate in uh, the Day of Atonement, this is how a foreigner does it. All of that implies we expect foreigners to... Uh, participate uh, in this. So all of Israel's worship was not, this is our God, this is what we're going to do, you've got yours, you worship yours, uh, you know, near the, the two shall meet or something like that. But we expect people uh, to be a part of our worship down the line. In fact, Exodus 12 is another interesting one. Again, you, you, read, o you read these things, you read over them, you know, just in the context of we're following the Okay, here's the start of Israel, the, the Exodus, um, the Red Sea, and this and that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know if it's verse 38 or verse 39, somewhere in a, at the end of Exodus. You just run right over it. But as Israel is leaving, uh, it mentions all of these other foreigners that are mixed into the group. Now, how did those people become uh, foreigners interested in leaving their homeland, leaving whatever good life they had there to go uh, with the Israelites uh, on this journey over to the Promised Land. Uh, again, you have hints of mission work. Uh, Moses preached to Pharaoh, uh, and he preached to others, and the people got the message, and many of them became believers and joined. One of the things I find most fascinating about that is, you know, that's kind of tucked in there, but then if you, I think it's Joshua 8, right around the story of, you know, they, they're into the Promised Land, okay, and I think it's the AI story. And right after that, they start to reestablish kind of, uh, you know, some, you know, we're, we're in the promised land, some covenant language. And those same foreigners that walked out of Egypt with the Israelites uh, are mentioned again as being still a part of the group, which is kind of funny and far more fascinating than anything about Israel because those are the folks that if they joined them, they joined them 40 years ago. And when... <laughs> Everything went south, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden God's like, you're never going to enter in there. Uh, they had every reason, every excuse to just, you know, jump ship. This mm -hmm. is ridiculous. I don't feel like spending my life wandering. They, they were not doing it because they're like, this is going to be a great nation. We want to go here instead of Egypt. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, they, so they stuck around. You could see a genuine faith in them. So uh, Exodus, just the, yeah, the, Exodus 12, Exodus whatever, 19 at Mount Sinai. We make a huge deal about Peter, uh, a kingdom of priests, but Peter's quoting what God said to the Israelites. You are a kingdom of priests. They had built in 
uh, to their thinking right away. We are to bring the gospel to our neighboring nations. Yeah, I've always thought about that, that priesthood thing. We, we, we as Lutherans, we go, you know, priest of all believers and against, uh, you know, a, uh, a priesthood of, of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Fine. Um, but that whole, the, both of those letters um, from Peter, they do have kind of a vocational feel to it. Like, you're a kingdom of priests, and there's, uh, you know, you're going to suffer for it. And there's, a, you know, the, this is who you have made. And then he gives, like, kind of a table of duties, like in a Martin Luther sense here. And if we equate that with Israel, Israel, the mediator between God and the rest of the world. How are you going to know about God? Well, it's going to be preaching. And who's going to do the preaching? Well, it's going to be the prophets and, the, and in a certain way, the priests and the, and the teachers of, of Israel. But they're also ones who morally serve the world in the sense, not that it's a primary focus, but there are things about like human rights and certain laws that Israel was ahead of the game of the ancient Near East, that they were to be an example. And, and they failed at that as we all would, but they are doing the love of, of the love God wants in the world, even though it was a violent situation, they're still an example. They were supposed to treat foreigners well, all that kind of stuff. And to be the literally proclaimers of the gospel. So I, I'm glad you brought that up. I don't know if you have anything more to say on this, the idea of priesthood being that kind of a mediator, not just of a sacrifice, <laughs> but of the word of God to the world. Well, yeah, you can, you can look at some of those laws, especially the ones that we might identify as a little bit on the weird side. Like, um, I think it's in the context of, you know, some of the laws about blood and, and not eating blood. Uh, it mentions foreigners. It, again, it mentions foreigners with the Day of Atonement, which certainly had a number of, uh, you know, bizarre to the eye sort of things. It mentions foreigners there. I think when it comes to uh, uh, Israelite soldiers, it mentions foreigners. And as you look at the context of those, um, you know, what, why does it? Why is there such an emphasis on what is the? How is the foreigner supposed to view or obey these certain laws? Uh, and you see almost like a built-in, God's building in a, a mission opportunity or evangelical opportunity because if any foreigner, believing or not believing, especially not believing, is living in the Israelites' midst and all of a sudden it comes to the Day of Atonement and they're like, sorry, dude, you can't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, why can't I work? Well, you can't work because we're going to have this special day where our priest is going to put all of our sins uh, you have conversations that are opened up immediately uh, for the average Israelite person to say, well, here's why we have this unique law. It's based on uh, this gracious God that we have and the sins that he takes away. So, yeah, the law definitely gave them opportunities to do mission work. Yeah, I was like, <coughs> excuse me, the, the, the concept of that law um, taught them something theologically it wasn't just follow these rules so i'm, I'm glad you glad you brought that up um so we talked about abraham and you can see hints of and certainly maybe not even maybe less hints but actual evidence of people who were brought into the faith at least through circumcision right um and you say you talked about moses preaching and uh we talked anything else from the patriarchs though before we get into moses and later that that gave us a, a hint of, of this missiology um joseph maybe i mean where yeah i don't i mean joseph is an interesting one because i i don't as i read him i you know you don't have anything very super specific luther makes a huge deal about you know joseph was prepared uh, by his upbringing to bring the gospel to the Egyptians and finds that. I think in, in his wife, um, I, have to, I can't exactly remember, but in his wife, he marries an Egyptian woman. Uh, they name their kids names that reflect a faith in you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, you know, I, I think you have evidence there. Uh, that he shared the faith at least with his wife, and then you you know there's there's good reason to believe otherwise. I mean, as you go through you know Old Testament leading up to Moses, uh, Enoch, Jude identifies Enoch as a you know as a preacher in his time. Um, you know Noah had the biggest pulpit ever, and Peter makes that point. Hey, he was a preacher of righteousness, and I mean if his family amounted to eight, who is he really preaching to? 
uh, that preaching, I think you could you could argue was um, evangelical preaching to the world. Righteousness brings in an idea of law and gospel. I mean, both the righteousness uh, that we are missing, uh, you know, by our own uh, lives and our own sin, but the righteousness that that God gives. So I think you mentioned before Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek is an interesting one because, first of all, how did he become a believer? Uh, but he also clearly was uh, an independent uh, proclaimer, uh, you know, outside uh, of, you know, Abraham. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one, same idea, but, you know, fast forward to Moses, Jethro. Uh, Jethro is an interesting one, uh, priest of Midian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, so he's a guy who's proclaiming the truth among um you know, non-Jewish people, non-Israelites, and yet, first of all, how did he become a believer? Uh, and, uh, you know, second of all, he's proclaiming the word among Gentiles. Yeah, I think uh, something that we probably should be not make a big deal of, but be aware of, there is evidence of people coming to faith outside of the specific nation of Israel or that line from Abraham. And that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, Noah's family, I mean, some of that message probably trickled down, you know, and probably in a corrupt form as it, it's going to in a sinful world. Um, I mean, just the fact that those 300 servants of, of Abraham, where did they go? Where did their families go? Who's to say, that if, we, if we just to say all three, 300, you know, maybe we're in this covenant agreement and let's just say, you know, I, I don't know that we can say they all had faith right away, but let's say let's say some of them did. That all of a sudden that faith just died out. Well, where did they go? You know, and what whom did they tell? And so I think there's a good reason to believe that there is quite a bit more non-Hebrew people in heaven <laughs> than we give credit for, right? Yeah. And if you have if you have Jethro Melchizedek, if you have just a couple couple of instances of that. I think that leads us to think that there's most likely a multitude of examples in reality. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, you know, we we just, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about very many individuals. It just tells us a few short stories about key figures, whether Old Testament or New Testament. Um, you know, I don't know if anyone's ever told them, but there's, you know, what you can do. And I think it's safe to say is extrapolate that out far further, especially when you start to ask the question, like you said, well, where did those 300 go? Or how did someone like Job hear mm-hmm. uh, and, and come to faith in the first place? So I think we usually stick him as a contemporary of Abraham. Um, you know, that speaks to probably some, some connection back to Noah. But again, it's outside of that framework of the, you know, the patriarchs and the, the Israelites. You know, this is going to be speculation and, and maybe unhealthy speculation, but um, when I look at, okay, here's the, this ancient world, and there's similar stories. You know, there's a flood story we've been told in just about every, um, you know, every ancient culture. There is similarities between um, uh, uh, a, redemp- a need for redemption, a figure kind of like the knight in shining armor. There is often a sense of sacrificial something going on there. And you have to ask your question, how much of that was borrowed? And we just don't know how much of it was legitimately shared as in like Noah and his family literally shared this stuff and it gets corrupt down the road. And then how much of it is just the natural desire that we have that there's a problem, we need a savior. Um, I think it's probably all of the above. I, I've always said, and this is pretty dark, but I always thought that the, the people who, who, sa- who were child sacrificers were pretty good theologians. They're looking at the world and it's messed up. Seems that God or whoever's in charge is pretty darn angry and <laughs> indiscriminate with uh, the violence and the natural disasters. Um, it's up there somewhere, this he, shit, you're it. Um, and we better do something to make it happy. How do I get something up there, right? You know, a sacrifice. And if that doesn't work, you probably need a better sacrifice. Well, what is the better sacrifice than just food and drink that, you know, to feed the gods? Well, that would be lifeblood, mm-hmm. right? So how, many, how much of this was, 
carried on this idea of a sacrifice that was going to be an appeasing kind of thing. How much of it was just natural? I mean, we just don't know. And we can abuse that speculation. But it seems to me that there's a lot more going on theologically in the world um, outside of Israel than we really give credit for. And I think that, you know, again, you know, like you said, it's somewhat speculation, but the Bible, I think, even opens us up to say, well, you know, let's, we can speculate and, you know, understanding the power of the gospel, there's, there's some amount of uh, good in that. I, you think of the story of Rahab, and I mean, for that matter, all the times that the Old Testament wants to and bothers to mention uh, foreigners who came to faith, but part of what brought Rahab to faith is we uh, Jericho folks have heard about all this stuff that the Israelites have done in the name of their, their Lord. So in other words, these, these rumors go out. People from a long way away hear about them. Uh, they process them. Uh, you know, how you know, entirely Rahab came to faith, I don't know. But it just tell, it speaks of the message went out uh, in ways and accomplished things, uh, at least in one particular story. Uh, and you wonder how much more. I think of another story too. Uh, David's fighting men uh, is another one of those. Uh, David's, uh, you know, I think, it, I can't remember, you know, the, he has this elite troop uh, of guys, and I, was it 30 guys? Uh, I think Uriah was among those. But if you start to look at the names and name some the specific descriptions, uh, David's elite fighting troop is a m- bunch of foreigners, even Philistines. Uh, how did he gather these guys? Where did these guys all come from? Well, I mean, again, maybe some speculation, but it seems like when David was on the run from Saul, uh, he went to uh, you know Philistia. He hung out there, hiding, but he made buddies and he shared his faith with uh, some of the best fighters that he hung out with and that he hid among. Uh, some of them came to faith. Some of them became his most trusted people. Some became a part of his elite fighting force. Uh, if David did that with those guys, they joined his elite fighting force. How many more mm-hmm. uh, Philistines that he hung out with, their wives, their families, their cousins, also uh, came to believe? Again, I believe Uriah is among them. Uh, and so just to you know, kind of emphasize that, isn't Uriah's name... Uh, has the Lord built into us. The Lord is my light, I believe. I can't remember exactly, but the Lord is my light. Uh, you know, Uriah the Hittite, of course, there you see his, uh, you know, foreign background. Um, but whatever happened, wherever he got that name or wherever he took that name on is a, a confession of faith. So you see among these fighting men were guys that David had evangelized. Uh, and how many more? Again, I think it's fair, ex, you know, um, so speculation. Yeah. How do you balance um, the don't marry a foreign wife, um, don't eat with the Gentiles, that kind of stuff? How do you how do you balance that out with uh, all the evidence that we've given for that there had there was mission work going on? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because for. You know, for Esau, don't take a foreign wife. I think that was Esau really shouldn't have gone down that road. That was that was bad for him. Um, and this was a p- specific line of the savior kind of thing. Yeah. Right. And uh, you know, I always, uh, I'll just take over here for a second. <laughs> <laughs> what I say, and then you say if 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 this is something that jives with what you've been studying or not. So um, when I try to explain this to my students about. You know, why are, why is this their cultural hedge around Israel? Like, don't do this, don't do, eat, don't eat this, don't eat that. Um, and I say, you need a, you need something that's going to bind you together. You know, there needs to be uh, an ethnicity. There needs to be a language, a culture, something like that. And um, we can see this as immigrants come to different countries today. They start losing their language. They start losing their food. They start losing that stuff. And 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 grandma's worried that you're losing that 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 culture or whatever as you're as you're brought into another another culture and stuff like that. But the point for Israel was different. The point was to keep Israel as a nation, to keep them culturally, to keep them different. And one way to do that was cultural. One way to do that is different rules, different customs, different foods, different language, different all that kind of stuff. And um, we may roll our eyes at that, but then I say to the students, okay, next time you watch the Olympics, 
tell me if there's a contingent from Moab, Edom, Philistia. <laughs> they all they all swallowed up. The only one left is Egypt, and that's a completely different ethnicity. Not well, not completely different, but almost a completely different uh, eth, uh, different kind of of uh, place. That Egypt is the the place, not really the continuation of the Pharaoh, whatever. But there will be a contingency from Israel. Mm-hmm. It worked. It literally worked. But that does not mean that they were being racist. In fact, that's just a term we're obsessed with race after the Enlightenment, I think. But that those foreigners come in and they, in a sense, become Israelite, even though they're not technically a part of the line of the Savior. So I don't know if that that jives with what you have been thinking about, how you you balance Israel being this one singular nation with a goal to bring about the Messiah— and its mission to the Gentiles. Yeah, I mean, there's some kind of balanced view, and I think your explanation for why, you know, why does the Lord at some points in places say, you know, be separate from the 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 nations around you, um, and it has to do with keeping, you know, that you know we're the covenant people, and from us is to become the Savior. But the balanced view is. You know, in some ways, like, okay, don't mar- intermarry, but then, you know, in in the law, it says, if you intermarry uh, with, you know, like, especially the soldiers, then this is how you do it. But that when you look at how to do it, uh, the rules have everything to do with make sure she uh, understands your faith and really becomes a believer, uh, you know, sort of thing. So you see some of that built in. Uh, another balancing thing is is just to you know not only see okay God says here's the things to do say to say separate He gives the law through Moses, but Moses has got to be one of the biggest um, you know trumpeters of this is for the nations. Uh, it's in Deuteronomy chapter four uh, where he's explaining to Israel again they're going through the covenant again, and he says part of the purpose of us living like this and in this way is so that the other nations see that all their gods are, are, are nothing mm-hmm. and the one God is the Lord God, our God, uh, you know, Jehovah, Yahweh. Uh, you know, think of Exodus 32, is it, where, you know, God's ready to, okay, I'm done with Israel, let's start over. And what does Moses say? He's very much concerned about uh, the nations. What are the nations going to think of the one true God? I want the nations to know the one true God as the one true God, not a guy who uh, destroys his people. Uh, maybe it's a little bit to the side, but again, if Moses is the one who gives the laws that say, let's stay safe, we need to stay separate for these purposes, and Moses is also the one that expresses concern uh, for the other nations and knowing the true Lord. Uh, he marries Zipporah. I don't know that we can make much of that. She's some kind of Midianite, I guess. But the best interpretation understanding is uh, of i think at least personally of moses is that he or that zipporah dies and we talks of you know miriam remember and aaron get ticked off because they don't like his wife they don't like his wife uh she's uh cushite or ethiopian uh so here is moses marrying a foreign woman uh and presumably bringing her into the faith so you have all these different things that balance, but also demonstrate how mission was a big deal to Moses as a leader of the Israelites uh, to include uh, foreigners. And here he is, a, a gal from Africa, uh, and he <coughs> marries her, brings her into the covenant people, uh, and another example of God's word to the nations. Yeah, and I, you know, think of think of just being a parent right now you're let's say you have a stable home and everything's great and you're bringing up your children and you want them to be you want them to love everybody like everybody don't be a bully you know befriend everybody be you know in a christian way be a light in the world and at the same time you can say uh who are you hanging out with i don't yeah. want you to go into that house so what gives well in one case i'm like i don't want you to be corrupt and i don't trust you in that situation and the other times like i want you to be a friend of that kid um, and just remember you got it pretty good and he doesn't mm-hmm. and you appreciate that, you know, and, and be a good example to, to that. And it's simplistic, but I think it's part of the reason why Esau don't, don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> like that's going to be bad for you knowing your personality and what we need to do here is this, the furthest line of the savior, the promise, not that they would have articulated it that way. Um, but another 
places, it would have been a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. yeah. So good. So we've kind of gotten to, to Moses. And um, what about the kingdom of Israel? Uh, miss, missiology. Um, well, you could maybe do judges to there and you want, but I'm thinking uh, David, Saul, United Kingdom and the, and the, and, and the divided kingdom yeah. up into the exile. Any insights from there? I don't know that I have specifics besides for just, again, Israel, you're a kingdom of priests and presumably in the judges of all that mess of everybody doing whatever they wanted. And at that time, I don't know that I have any specifics, but when you get into the kings, uh, Elijah to the Syrophoenician woman, uh, uh, Elisha as well. You think of uh, Naaman, mm-hmm. the servant of Naaman is a, is a, you know, a wonderful kind of a neat story. Uh, because we're talking about a little kid who has it on her heart to share at least the prophet of the one true God. Uh, there's, I think, even... With her captors. With her captors, <laughs> yeah. I think you could even say, you know, um, there's some amount of evidence to suggest that Naaman at least tried to bring uh, the gospel to uh, his king. Um, you know, you have uh, Jonah, uh, which is, of course, held out as the big, you know, that's that's where, okay, they did a little bit of mission work, and hopefully we're making a case that there was a whole lot more going on. I think Jonah's also a good, um, at least in, in my opinion, thinking about this. You know, we make a lot about the mission work in the New Testament. You know, like they did so much mission work, God said, go and make disciples of all nations, and they went out. But if you really think about it as far as amount, uh, what actual mission work do we know from the New Testament? We have a really long story mm-hmm. uh, of the Apostle Paul. And we have a couple other little stories uh, in there, and we have a whole bunch of prophets uh, or apostles, as we call them, in the New Testament who wrote to various people, not just in Israel, uh, you know, but all around uh, you know, the world of the, the, the early church. Uh, but if you look at it from that standpoint, you could probably say the same thing is true of the Old Testament. We've got the story of Jonah, not as long as the story of uh, the Apostle Paul. We've got things like Moses. We've got Abraham. We've got a whole lot of little stories. You could probably argue, really, that it's not that you know there's just little glimpses of mission in the Old Testament, and that's what mm-hmm. the New Testament is about. But really, the whole of the Bible mm-hmm. uh, is a, a mission uh, book. It's God sending you know, his son, Christ, and the church, old and new, and even little individuals down to uh, the, you know, the servant of, of Naaman. And you have a few glimpses of official, the, probably you could argue the only official sending um, of a guy targeting a foreign nation uh, in Jonah. But then you have all of the prophets, mm-hmm. and some of them very specifically so, right to foreign nations. Uh, Isaiah includes the foreign nations quite a bit. Um, Daniel uh, and the three boys, uh, the three men in the fiery furnace, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Ezekiel is there too among the captives. Jeremiah is down in uh, Egypt. Uh, all of these, you could even speak of all of the, you know, not the main four that we know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, but there's, you know, there's enough to say that the individual Israelites uh, in captivity. There's another example, like I think personally, you know, Acts 8, you know, the persecution, Stephen gets stoned, persecution starts, and we make a big deal about mm-hmm. the, you know, the Christians leave, and it's your average layman uh, who takes the gospel with them, and they start spreading the word, uh, you know, wherever they went. Isn't that exactly what you just have in di- different words mm-hmm. with the Babylonian captivity? Uh, not persecution drove them, their own sin drove them, their own captivity, but all of a sudden they're among foreigners uh, and there's plenty of evidence to say uh, they came to uh, or they brought their gospel to their neighbors uh, while in captivity. Yeah, work for the work for the flourishing, the shalom, the prosperity of the of the city, Jeremiah says to those to those captives. Now, thinking about this in an apologetic sense, uh, uh, just so our listeners know, we did an apologetics course here in the summer WLC uh, some pastors some laymen it was a it was a fun week and this is Friday uh, Pastor Dobler was was there and, and I was thinking when I'm trying to make a case for why we should do apologetics you go to the New Testament and there's not a whole lot there we got like you said we should, in the same sense of evangelism we got a couple stories mm-hmm. we got Paul and the long story we got a couple letters and stuff but most of his letters are 
two congregations. We don't have what he said to skeptics other than in Athens and when he was on trial. We mm-hmm. don't have those conversations. That there's no way that any of us would think those are the only two conversations that he had, you know, besides in the synagogue, with people that were <laughs> skeptical. I mean, obviously not. In the same way, just because we know about mission work to in the New Testament through Paul to the West does not mean that it didn't happen to the East and to the South and to the North. Just because we only have Melchizedek doesn't mean that there were not more um, people who were not only believers, but priests of the true God. Um, And and just the beautiful idea of Jesus being in the line of the Melchizedek priesthood, not the Levitical priesthood, uh, is is something to to, to think about. Just because we only have the story of, of Jonah and 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 Daniel and and in uh, the exile doesn't mean that it wasn't happening all the time. I mean, where does Jonah want to go? He wants to go across the Mediterranean, and he has, you know, he's obviously um, um, taken by God to go back to Nineveh. Well, that means that they those people, maybe he knew somebody there, right? I mean, the the Jewish people, the Israelites, had been traveling for, for centuries, of course. Are you telling me that they always, in every situation, left their, that left their faith behind? It just doesn't seem like a, a, a sound historical um, judgment. And no. so I, there, I, think, I think the faith went further than, like we said before, than maybe we thought before. Yeah, well, I mean, if there's one story, I think it's fair to assume that there's other stories like it to say to to assume that they only did something once, and that's the one that was recorded in the scripture, and so that's all there was. Uh, you know, for, again, another example of that would be like Jeremiah. Uh, he gets thrown in the cistern. Uh, who rescues him? Ebed Melech. Who's Ebed Melech? An Ethiopian guy. <coughs> I mean. Uh, again, in his name, you can he, you can hear a, a sense of you know he's a believer, uh, and how did this guy come to faith? And we know he's a believer. So you have Moses's wife as this Ethiopian gal. You have Eben Melek as uh, this Ethiopian gal. You have the the Queen of Sheba. Uh, we're talking about all these different touches in Africa, uh, and how did these folks come to faith? And what did they then do with the faith that they came to? You know, Ebed Melech is, my goodness, he's not only, you know, from, you know, Cush, uh, Ethiopia area. He's all, he's even further removed from his home. Uh, what did he do? How did he come to faith? And what did he do with the faith? It's one story, but I think it's fair to say behind that one story, there's got to be yeah. others and family <laughs> and, and other acquaintances. Uh, I don't know if I read this somewhere or if it was a documentary or something like that, but was talking about the Ark of the Covenant and where did the Ark of the Covenant go, and we we've lost that track of that. And there, uh, the Ethiopian Coptic Church believes it ha- has it, but they have it. Yeah, yeah they they're convinced it. they have it. <laughs> there is another group that I did not know. I'm not sure how far north of of South Africa, the modern country of South Africa, but I don't know how how far south, but pretty far south, if I remember, visualizing this, visualizing this map of African Jewish people who also believe they have the Ark mm-hmm. but can trace their Jewish faith all the way back. Yeah. And that's that's an archaeological and historical rarity that we can we can we can pinpoint that in all history. Um, but we know that if there's one what are the chances of that one historical archaeological whatever fact surviving? What's more likely is that there was a hundred and one survived, mm-hmm. right? So how many, how many Jewish colonies um, of people who are uh, of probably then mixed and so primarily of African descent were there? I don't know. Yeah. But I'm willing to bet that there was more than a few. Yeah. And far more than we maybe have ever thought about before. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so even, even just because of some of those things get lost to history doesn't mean that they didn't exist. And then... As we know, St. Paul, his mission work, uh, quite easier than Jonah's. Well, you, and in a lot of cases, maybe a lot easier than today in the sense you go to the synagogue, you have a place to go, right? You yeah. know, I mean, he's not going, well, what now do I do? He's got a place. He's got a building where he can start. 
um, that that did not happen going south and east and north seems to be a pretty ridiculous historical thing for us to think. And, and we're left only, of course, with church tradition that Thomas made it to India and all that kind of stuff. And who knows? But, uh, yeah, interesting stuff. Well, yeah, and I think you can see it, it. I mean, it fits biblically. First of all, I think there's far more evidence of mission activity in the Old Testament uh, once you go through who are the people that brought the gospel to foreign nations, and we mentioned some of them, who are the foreigners do we know from the Old Testament that came to faith, and we've mentioned a bunch of those. Uh, you think of the power of the gospel that we trust, uh, and it's as safer, safer to assume uh, that there was far more conversion, far more mission, uh, and mi- mission success, so to speak, uh, around the, the ancient world than and among the Gentile nations than we perhaps have thought before. And that's what I find kind of a, just a fascinating study to look at mission in the Old Testament uh, as its own distinct thing because you start to pull out names, you start to pull out passages, you realize there's a whole lot more than I ever uh, considered before. So lessons from the Old Testament for the uh, current church. I mean, is it few and far between or um, what, can we, what can we learn in a practical way here? Um, I think one would be uh, just to, to reaffirm mission. God is always about mission. Uh, you know, he's, with the first sin, he sends himself immediately. And in Genesis 3, verse 15, hidden behind uh, those words, he will crush your head as God's going to send a Savior. Uh, mission didn't start with the Great Commission. We don't have some kind of like soft... I don't know if you could call it that, but soft dispensationalism, like something was done. Uh, this is the way God treated people in the Old Testament or wanted them to get the gospel, and in the New Testament, a, a total different way. But always God has been about sending people, and that trickles down to us today. Um, we have the nations around us, again, almost in a unique way like the Israelites and all these different nations at this crossroads. Uh, they're coming into our cities, our neighborhoods from around the world in a global Uh, the global world we live in, and to see that the Israelites were considered in their time a kingdom of priests, uh, we still are sent by God, a kingdom of priests, to see that the gospel worked uh, and brought converts like Rahab, Ruth, uh, those guys I mentioned from the Philistines, uh, and so many more, uh, you know, from places where they grew up in entirely pagan societies. Uh, Humanly speaking, we might be tempted to say, oh, there's no way those folks would ever listen to the truth. And we'll say that about the folks around us now. But the gospel was shared and the Holy Spirit worked. And people from backgrounds that you would maybe never expect uh, came to faith and even became a major part of uh, the story, the line of the Savior, or like that Lemuel or Agur became guys who wrote books for the Bible uh, we have that same possibility today with the, the, the pagans uh, that are living around us. Uh, we have people from all over the world, different backgrounds. Uh, we can, we're called to, and we can uh, continue to share the gospel in that line of mission that's started at the very beginning of the Bible and continues till Christ comes again. Uh, share that gospel uh, and expect to see some interesting results and maybe results far beyond what we could ever imagine or even see with the eye. And it may not be recorded. And right? it, may, yeah. it just may not be recorded for us historically, and that's just okay. So any last words uh, on, on missiology in Old Testament? Or how about this? Uh, um, what, what, what would be next on your as you're studying missiology that you would like to share with us for another episode? Well, if we want to go in some kind of uh, you know, historical order, what's kind of interesting to me was you know, it's built off of this. You can see there's a lot of mission in... Uh, the Psalms. Uh, there's a, someone's counted on my, you haven't double checked, but there was 175 missiological references in the Psalms, and you can read the Psalms for all kinds of reasons. Uh, another one the next time you work your way through is just to see all of the missiological encouragements that you find in there. And one of the ones that I stumbled on, which is kind of fun to do because you, would, you wouldn't think about it, uh, is just to look at Psalm 22. Uh, and see that psalm that we so associate with the passion of Christ, Mm -hmm. uh, but also notice how even in that psalm, in a kind of a neat way, um, you know, 
uh, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, slips in uh, missiological terms and uh, an encouragement, especially right at the end. So we could look at that yeah. and any other things. That would be good. I think that would be good jumping off uh, a point for the next time that you come on. So, uh, dear listeners, if you if you like this, uh, stay tuned. We'll get we'll get uh, Pastor Brian Dobler on again for some more missiological talk. So, uh, with this uh, uh, gospel freedom that we have, we do not need to be tepid about our proclamation of the gospel, but we are uh, free to trust that God is not going to let his word return to him empty-handed, which is an Old Testament passage with missiological implications um, from Isaiah. Um, And we want to pass along that gospel freedom, uh, first of all, so that people can enjoy and uh, heaven and flourish there forever, but also that they can live in freedom right here so that they can look at what God has done for them and say, there's nothing left to do but let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down Get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink I set them up, another round I set them up, another round I set them up, another round One more round won't get me down